Welcome to Cathedral of the Rockies Amity Podcast. My name is Tyler, and I work here at Cathedral of the Rockies with Pastor Ben Kramer. Today, we continue on in our Twisted Scripture series by trying to make sense of the passages in the Old Testament which depict God as a violent God. This topic has caused a lot of distrust in the Bible, even to the point in which some have argued that we need to completely drop or detach the Old Testament and look only to the New Testament. Passages about God commanding violence have been used to justify things such as slavery and the colonizing conquests by European nations. So how should we approach these passages? The big question I think you should ask going into this topic is, what is the Bible? This is the foundational question in which our answers to this will then shape how we, how we interpret any passage in the Bible. So think about your answer to this question, because Pastor Ben is going to attempt to share with us what the Bible really is, uh, both you know historically, culturally, uh, in its context, all that. So that way maybe we can try and make sense of these violent passages and hopefully a proper understanding of what the Bible is can make them a little less troubling, though troubling nonetheless. But anyways, enjoy. my friends. I'll invite you back to your seats. Um, again, we're looking at some rather unsettling passages together today. Try to un- untwist or at least understand deeper what we're supposed to understand when we encounter these texts in the Bible. Um, because we have, a, as, as we all know, we have a long, long faith tradition. For Christians, it's over 2,000 years, and if we connect it with our Old Testament as we should, it's in the Israelite tradition, it's much longer than that even. And so needing to understand these themes that we encounter in the Bible is really important because it teaches us something about how we approach Scripture and its whole purpose in our life, right? These are fundamental questions for who we are as people of faith. So as we read these things, just uh, um, just to let you know that it will be <laughs> uncomfortable reading these things, but we're gonna we're gonna think about these things together. The first passage um, that we're gonna look at is in First Kings fifteen. Um, listen to these words. This is in our in our scriptures. This is what the Lord Almighty says: I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. The word of the Lord. (laughs) Now, something that, you know, I... As a Christian, I always have Jesus' words like ricocheting in my head. And as I'm reading that, I hear Jesus saying, you know, and Paul both, don't repay evil for evil. Isn't that what we're kind of encountering in this passage? Let alone like like conquering an empire, but saying to kill families as well, right? 
Again, Deuteronomy chapter 20 in Scripture. When you draw near to a town to fight against it, offer it terms of peace. That's good so far. If it accepts your terms of peace and surrenders to you, then all the people in it shall serve you as forced labor. (laughs) But if it does not accept your terms of peace and makes war against you, then you shall besiege it. And when the Lord your God gives it into your hand, you shall put all its males to the sword. You may, however, take as your plunder the women, the children, the livestock, and everything else in the town, all its spoils. You may enjoy the spoil of your enemies, which the Lord your God has given you. Anyone else uncomfortable? Like, I don't want to keep going, and there's others in Scripture. These are violent texts in our sacred texts. These are part of our Bible. And this is genocide in the name of God. Let's just call it what it is. And we haven't even gotten to Joshua, where it's the worst case of genocide in Scripture against the Canaanites. So what are we supposed to do? And if we're not asking, let me just say this. If we're not asking these questions, if we're not struggling with these texts, I have a struggle with you, (laughs) right? I have a struggle with your theology. It's like, nope, there it is in, your, in the Bibles. That's what God said. That's what it is. But as I read through these texts, we can kind of start to understand that if you're just cherry-picking these kind of texts, your theology can get really brutal against people, right? You can start justifying some of the worst things against your human fellow neighbors and use the Bible to do it, right? When you look into some of the worst things in the 21st century, and even before that with with the uh, slavery and things like that, passages just like this were used to conquer indigenous people, to justify slavery. It's in the Bible. It's what God says. Therefore, we have divine right to go and do these things as God's people. So it's so important to understand these texts in the way that they were written and how they were supposed to be understood. Here's some more. That God, I'm just going to lay a little bit more on you. If you hadn't gotten the point already, here's some more. <clears throat> these are some texts that invite the death penalty in the name of God and the law of Moses. First, you should be put to death if you sacrifice to a God other than Yahweh. I don't think anyone's guilty of that in this room, right? Okay, phew. Next one, persistent rebelliousness on the part of a child. I'm going to post that one in Foster's room, right? (laughs) Number three, a child that curses or hits their parents. Death penalty. I have never done that, right? I've never cursed my parents. Next, working on the Sabbath. Uh Uh-oh. Chick-fil-A took that one seriously, right? (laughs) Not working on the Sabbath. Death penalty. Sex before marriage. Death penalty. Right, so, and the list can go on and on. This is a short list, an abbreviated list. But again, we have God sanctioning the death penalty for these kind of infractions. We don't, and this is a problem with a very strict literalist approach to the Bible. 
that if you're going to take a literalist approach to Scripture, then you have to follow these things letter by letter and require that from other people who claim to follow God. Right? So it comes down to this fundamental thing. What do we think about the Bible, and how are we supposed to pr- approach its purpose in our lives? Here are, in our own scriptures are multiple assertions that God commands us to kill others. And how does one reconcile this violent God that we see in these passages with the teachings of Jesus? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught in Matthew 5, you have heard the law says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. It's quite a different flip, isn't it? Why is God portrayed as so violent in some parts of the Bible? Why did God tell God's people to kill other people? Well, I think there's two vital things to keep in mind here as we're reading these things. One is historical context, and I'm going to be harping on these things, so you can, you can be sure I'll remind you again. These two things, when we're especially approaching um, uh, reading these passages about God, historical context and that people, their theology was evolving in that time. There's a big question, why, why was the Bible written, right? Why were these passages written? What's its purpose in our life? Israel is, is, is talking about their relationship with God in real, real life terms, right? And in their historical context, when an empire would conquer another empire, guess whose God was seen as most victorious, right? Like I said, everything was theological, So when one empire claimed and conquered another empire, their God was considered victorious. And also, Scripture also doubled as news media, (laughs) entertainment, poetry. Like, all the things that we're reading here was also circulated as the the forms of understanding in that time and culture. So when a one nation said, this battle took place, guess who they were going to write as the victors? Themselves, right? And it wasn't just victory. It was all complete, encompassing victory. So there were no survivors, right? And we take the Battle of Jericho, for example, one that I grew up, you know, we walked around the town seven times and we blew our trumpets, you know, great thing to teach kids in Sunday school, right? The Battle of Jericho. But you know, archaeologists have been searching forever to see if any battle ever took place there, and they really can't find any evidence for that. So again, we encounter Israel trying to understand its relationship with God, its relationship with the world, and all this to say, the point of Scripture is theology, right? Right? When we approach these passages and say, this is the picture of who God is, this one passage, we kind of miss the rest of the Bible, right? John Wesley has such a great approach to Scripture, and he says, you need to interpret Scripture with Scripture. So let me give you two examples. These passages we just heard, really violent picture of God. But then we just covered the book of Jonah. Anybody were here for that that sermon when we looked at Jonah? No one? No one was here? Oh, okay, there's a couple of hands. 
In Jonah, do we see God trying to destroy and call fire down on the Ninevites? Why is he sending Jonah in the first place? To save them, right? And if you understood who the Ninevites were to Israel, they were the worst possible enemies to Israel. Horrible. They did terrible things. The things that were being described in in that first Kings passage, that's what the Ninevites did to Israel. So Israel didn't want to have anything to do with the Ninevites. In fact, in other parts of of the Bible, you hear prophets calling for the destruction of Nineveh. But in Jonah, we see Israel doing what? Maybe the Ninevites, even though they're our enemies, should be loved. And so God calls Jonah to call for the repentance of Nineveh so that they may experience forgiveness and relationship rather than destruction and harm. But time has a huge role to play in this. When Israel was developing its understanding of God, it had also made the decision to have an empire, to have a human king. First Samuel chapter 8, such an important passage. Um, First Samuel chapter 8 talks about what will happen to Israel when it chooses to have a human king rather than God as their king. God says, they're going to tax you. That's reason enough to not have a human king. No, they're going to tax you. They're going to send your kids to war. They're going to misuse your women. Your king will, and you're going to be just like every other nation in the world if you choose a human king instead of your God. And Israel said, what? Okay. And Saul was their first king. Great first king, right? And then all the other kings throughout Scripture. So there, whenever you fuse, and this is the big, one of the biggest lessons for me in the Old Testament, when you fuse your empire with your understanding of God, God is always going to be just as violent as the empire. Because empires need violence to sustain themselves. Empires always need violence and trample on the poor, the lowly, and the vulnerable. But do you know what? And this is what all, this struck me, a light went off. And this may not be a light for anyone else, but an aha moment went for me when I was studying the Bible. How many books in the Bible are named after kings? Maybe Song of Solomon, but it's just his pop music, right? (laughs) David's attributed to writing some of the Psalms. How many books are written after prophets? Who are doing what? Calling the kings to the accountability of God. Scripture cares so much more about what prophets have to say than it does the king's. We as God's people should care about that too, right? So this contrast between law, prophets, kings, prophets, there is this debate that's raging through Scripture. So this is what the Bible does. And in our time right now, this is so culturally relevant because we're having a conversation, a national conversation about the history of our nation, right? Should we talk about enslaved people? Should we talk about slavery, the original sin? Should we talk about white supremacy, patriarchy, all these things? Should we talk about these things and teach these things? Do you know what Israel did? Yes. (laughs) If I was writing the history of my own life, would I talk about all of my idolatry, my unfaithfulness to God, my sins? 
Israel did. Israel wrote every single one of those things down, not hiding them, minimizing them, or blemishing them. Whenever they put words in God's mouth, like what we were reading, yeah, God justifies us to go and take this nation. Look, we wrote it down. How many times have we done that as Christians? Oh, God, God told me to do this. In college, it sounds like this. God told me to break up with you. <laughs> or God said that we were meant to be together. I had a friend who had the best response to that. Uh, a, a girl who had, well, it was low-key stalking, right? Every time we turned around, there she was, right? But she said, God told us that we're supposed to be together. You know what he said? He's like, you know what? I talk to God all the time, and he's never mentioned you. <laughs> I was like, I could not believe that he just said that. But he had reached the end of his rope, but I thought that was such a great response. Um, but we do this, right? Scripture is showing us how easy it is for us, as God's people, to put words in God's mouth. And then we see God's self-revelation coming along as a rainbow, saying, I'm not going to seek violence against you through the flood. Here is the law. Here's the covenant. Here's peace. Don't kill each other. <laughs> This is a command I give to you. Don't lie to each other. Don't covet each other's stuff. Like, here are the words of God, and then we take God and justify some of the worst things to each other so that we are elevated and our power is built. When the prophets and God are coming along and God is sending prophets saying, it's not about your accumulation of power and things and control in the world. It's about loving your neighbor as yourself. And then when we re how do we respond to that message time and time again in the Bible to the prophets? Oh, you know what? You're right. We'll repent. No, we silence the prophets. And this is the same thing that was done against Jesus with the cross. Jesus comes along and says, love your neighbor as yourself. Heals the, heals the blind, feeds the hungry, turns over tables of the money changers, and tries to question and critique the power of the empire. And what did we do? How did we respond? And so often, this is the lesson that we learn from Scripture. When we deny our tendency to do some of the worst things to each other, to unleash hell on each other, instead of confronting those things in our own hearts, we would rather prefer justify those things in the name of God to make ourselves not feel bad about them, right? But there's a, a raging debate in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, between the prophets and kings, the line of Moses, the line of David. And when we just kind of toss ourselves in the middle of that conversation, we're going to see a pretty skewed picture of how they thought God to be compared to the ongoing, evolving picture of who they came to see God to be at the end of it all, especially for those of us who see that Jesus is the greatest revelation of God in the world, right? We are called to read Scripture through the lens of this one we call the Son of God, Jesus Christ, because God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There's never been a time that God has not been like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but because of Jesus, we do know this now. And so when we read passages like this, 
we're supposed to understand, okay, this is where they were in this time period. This is how they understood God to be. Prophets came along, called for repentance. Jesus came along, called for repentance. Now, where, what am I going to do with this? Am I going to proceed forward with a very violent, vengeful picture of God? Because guess what? You'll act just like the picture of God you believe in. Right? How many people claim to follow God and look like Jesus? <laughs> right? It's so, so important that our picture of God looks more and more like Jesus every day. This is why it's so easy to look at the Bible and either justify slavery or abolish it, right? It's easy to look at the Bible and justify violence against one's enemies or condemn it, to justify political power for ourselves or denounce it and share it with others. The great Rachel Evans once wrote, if you are looking for Bible verses with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses to abolish slavery, you will find those too. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to honor and celebrate women, you'll find those too. If you are looking for reasons to wage war, there are plenty. If you are looking for reasons to promote peace, there are plenty more. If you're looking for an outdated and irrelevant ancient text, that's exactly what you'll find. If you're looking for truth, that's exactly what you will find. This is why there are times when the most instructive questions we can bring to the text is not, why does this say this, but what am I looking for? It's so important to understand what am I looking for when I come to read the Bible. Uh, one of the, one quote that I thought I'd end with this because it, um, it made me laugh and hopefully it'll make you laugh too because it's a heavy topic, right? Have you found this conversation at least a little bit helpful though? Okay, good. So this, I, I think John, uh, John Crossan put it really, really well. Uh, he says, my point once again is not that those ancient people told literal stories and we are now smart enough to take them symbolically, but that they told them symbolically and we are now dumb enough to take them literally. <laughs> the, I have found that to be so true. You know, being raised fundamentalist, so literal in scripture, and, and after studying scripture for as long as I have, it's just like so many of the authors were writing symbolic truths to convey a deeper meaning. Did you know that the Bible isn't a science book? That was a surprise to me, honestly. When I got to seminary, I'm like, what? <laughs> Did you know that the Bible isn't a history book? That's a little harder. So the book of Jeremiah is a perfect example. It does not follow a chronological order. You're reading it through. If you read it from chapter one to the very end, Jeremiah is in prison once advocating for his defense. A few chapters later, he's being indicted and being sentenced to prison. Wait, didn't we just read about that? Why is it going backwards? Because it doesn't follow chronological order. It follows theological order, right? So when we're ever asking a question, what does this mean? Its purpose begins and ends with a theological point. It is trying to make a theological point about God, 
and about us, about the world around us. And we will misread it and be misled ourselves when we're trying to read it as a science book or trying to read it as a history book. It can help us inform our understanding of history, right? Or science and other things like that. But when we treat the Bible as something that it's not, we will come away with something that it's not trying to tell us, right? And it's so important when we approach this concept of the violence that we see from God we also need to temper those things with how Israel and others in Scripture understood we got that part wrong. <laughs> we're tr- we put words in God's mouth, and we're going to try to do better again today. Isn't that what we're trying to do? <laughs> you know, we got that picture of God wrong. We need to repent from that, and we're going to try to do better to look like Jesus today. That's the lens in which we, I hope we can all approach Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to, we'd very much appreciate it if you would subscribe to this podcast as well as rate and review it. Also, if you'd like to connect with us, you can email us at amity.campus at boisefumc.org. That email will be in the show notes. Finally, as a smaller congregation, our budget is pretty tight. If you'd like to help out and donate to us, there is a link to do so in the show notes. Of course, no pressure, only if you're feeling called to give. But more income does mean possibly more content and better quality of content, as well as supporting our current ministries and those we'd like to expand on. Thank you. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the day.